Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Kathy Stevens of Catskill Animal Sanctuary. She is a longtime vegan and animal advocate, and Catskill up in New York is one of the oldest farmed animal sanctuaries in the U.S., so I'm really happy to share our conversation with you today. But before we get into that interview, one of my New Year's resolutions for this podcast is that I want to try to find time to talk more about fish. As a movement, as an animal rights and animal advocacy movement, I don't feel that we talk about fish enough. And we've gotten much better about bringing attention to chickens with organizations like United Poultry Concerns and the Micro Sanctuary Movement, the Micro Sanctuaries that focus exclusively on chickens. But I think that fish still don't get the attention that they need. And I'm working on securing some interviews with advocates doing work to protect fishes for this upcoming year. But in the meantime, I want to open our show today by talking about the marine life that we as humans eat that's classified as shellfish, kind of gray area, sea animals like clams and mussels and oysters. Uh, it's this, this gray area seafood that they're not exactly fish. And I, and I don't like using the term seafood. This is sea life we are talking about. Most people don't know a lot about these animals, so I wanted to share some information about them. So there's actually two classifications of marine life that we're talking about when we talk about animals that are killed uh, in the oceans that are eaten that are not exactly fish. <laughs> and one the one classification is crustaceans, and the other are freshwater mollusks or shellfish. And crustaceans are animals like lobsters, crabs, shrimp, and freshwater mollusks, shellfish, is the other classification. And then we're talking about animals like oysters, clams, mollusks, mussels. Uh, both of these classifications are animals. I mean, they are classified in the animal kingdom. So looking first at crustaceans, the lobsters, crabs, shrimp, crustaceans have a brain, a spine, a central nervous system, eyes, mouth. They're, they're very similarly structured to, to us, to fish, to all animals. And it has been scientifically proven that they feel pain and they are conscious, they're sentient. Actually, interestingly, Switzerland became the first nation in the world to ban the practice of boiling lobsters alive citing you know, the, their reasons for doing it is that lobsters felt pain in the process. The research that brought about this legislation, it was a study by Queen's University in Belfast, and it concluded that crustaceans are sentient creatures. You know, this is not the only study. There's been numerous studies. This is just the one that I'm citing here. There's many, many more. A spokesperson for the Federal Office of Food Safety and Veterinary Affairs in Switzerland said, quote, 
These studies show that lobsters, like other animals, experience pain and distress. So lobsters can no longer be boiled alive legally in Switzerland. And I believe that there's other legislative efforts in other countries similar to this as well. So we are recognizing, we are making these recognitions that these animals, our animals are like any animal and feel pain and suffer when we do these horrible things to them, like boiling them alive uh, and pulling them from the ocean, from their home, from the water bashing them and throwing them about. And it's just, it's horrible what we do to these poor animals. And then there's the other classification of animals, mollusks or shellfish. And this family of animals includes clams, oysters, mussels, uh, scallops, cockles, and most of them, their bodies are enclosed by two shells that are hinged together. So that's a way to identify this classification of animals, though they're not all that way. Uh, snails are also mollusks, and snails are also eaten uh, as um, escargot and other ways. And there's thousands of different species of mollusks, actually. They they have these really, some of them have these really fun, fanciful names like jewel box and jingle shells and kitten's paw. If you've ever studied birds or butterflies, they have even well, yeah, hummingbirds are birds. <laughs> they have wonderful names, some beautiful, beautiful names. And mollusks are that way too. Some of the names are really uh, imaginative. So mollusks are made out of muscle, just like us. Their bodies are muscle. They're specifically a posterior and anterior adductor muscle, as well as other muscles. And they have this kind of muscular foot that they can stick out of their shell and they can use that to dig or to propel their shell in a you know direction that they choose so they can kind of swim. They're able to move themselves. They can bury themselves in the sand and hide you know, from predators or protect themselves from pounding waves or even drying out in low tide, you know, they'll dig down to the moisture in the in the sand. Now, unlike crustaceans, again, lobsters, crabs, shrimp, mollusks don't have a brain or a spine. They don't have eyes or mouth, but they do have nerve fibers and a nerve network that's running through their body, similar to a fish's nervous system. They do have senses that can taste the water. They can be sensitive to touch. And while they don't have eyes, they do have light-sensitive cells that can detect shadow and light. And also these little creatures have a heart and a circulatory system. Their gills draw in oxygen from the water that you know circulates nutrients through their heart and through their whole body. And a side note here about pearls. Pearls are formed inside of oysters. Uh, so pearls are not technically vegan. Oysters are pried open and killed by the millions for this uh, little ball of a pearl. And, uh, you know, that's made into jewelry and buttons. So that's uh, certainly not vegan either to um, purchase new pearls. And that practice should stop. And shellfish are actually one of the most dangerous animals to eat. 
Shellfish cause countless illnesses every year. They've been associated with infectious disease for more than a century. And, uh, you know, it's because they, they're filter feeders. They're filtering gallons and gallons of water through their system to take in the plankton and oxygen and other nutrients in the water. So they help clean the ocean. They absorb toxins and neurotoxins. And those get stored in their liver-like digestive glands. And that builds up in their little bodies, uh, you know, the naturally occurring bacteria in, in the oceans as well as, and freshwater both, as well as viruses and other icky things from like coastal sewage contamination. And, ugh, you know, it's just, they, they, they have to filter a lot of, yuck and waste through their little bodies because of how polluted the oceans are. And people can get some really nasty illnesses by eating shellfish, uh, typhoid fever, neurovirus, uh, hepatitis A, paralytic shellfish poisoning, amnesic shellfish poisoning. That one causes memory loss and some terrible things. So not really worth the risk to eat them. And then environmentally, we're taking so many lives from the oceans, it's in the unfathomable billions. In fact, we, we count mammals and avians that we kill each year on land, you know, cows, pigs, chickens, turkeys. We count each individual life that we take, uh, each individual animal. But when it comes to marine life, we count the killing by the pound. There's so much life taken from the sea that we don't even know how many individuals it is. It's just so massive and unimaginable, and they count it by the pound. And climate change is affecting them as well. The Alaskan crab season was canceled last year, 2022, because about a billion crabs, and that's, yeah, that's billion with a B, have disappeared in the Bering Sea. They're just gone. And climate change is being blamed for that. But then we're killing billions more for fishing. And, you know, when we talk about these big numbers, this huge amount of death, we can't forget, we can't, we can't let the numbers distort that each and every one of those lives was a sentient individual that wanted to live. I, I long for the day when crab season is permanently canceled because we recognize the suffering we are causing these creatures. So ultimately, the question is, should we eat crustaceans and shellfish? Because they seem to fall into this gray area. All fish do, really. There's so many people that will just eat marine life, uh, but no other animals you know, and there's these questions like, do they feel pain? Are they conscious? All of this. So should we eat them? Well, I say no, no, because we know scientifically that they do feel pain. On a practical level, they are animals. They are classified in the animal kingdom. And, you know, that that's just not in the definition of a vegan diet that avoids animal products. But on a deeper level, while they may not have the same bodies or nervous systems as mammals and fish, 
mollusks, this shellfish, do have movable muscles. They sense taste and touch. They have a heart. They have a circulatory system. They have nerve fibers and a nerve network running through their bodies. I would say to give them the benefit of the doubt that there is something more there than just plant life. I really recommend to err on the side of sentience and stop killing and eating sea animals. All right, so let's let's wrap that up and let's get into our conversation for the day featuring one of the oldest farmed animal sanctuaries in the U.S. I hope you enjoy it. So today we have Kathy Stevens. She is the founder and director of Catskill Animal Sanctuary, a 150-acre refuge in New York's Hudson Valley for 11 different species of farmed animals. Kathy was an educator for many years, and in 2001, after turning down an offer to lead a new charter high school, Kathy co-founded Catskill Animal Sanctuary, where her love of teaching, her belief that education has the power to transform, and her love of animals come together. One of the world's leading sanctuaries for farmed animals, Catskill has saved more than 5,000 non-human individuals through direct rescue, and of course, even more through the programming and education. Uh, encouraging humans to adopt veganism. And we're very happy to have her here today. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hope. Happy to be on the podcast. Well, we're happy to have you. And uh, I we're opposite sides of the world. So I have never been, unfortunately, to your sanctuary in New York because I'm in California. Uh, but I love hearing about sanctuaries all over the place. So I can't wait to hear about yours. But we'd like to start with a little bit of getting to know you. So when and why did you go vegan? I know you grew up on a thoroughbred horse farm, which, yeah, which is really fascinating. So, so how did that influence you and, and how did that lead you to veganism? Well, I often think about how had anyone asked me as a young girl, if, if, uh, if my dad's animals, the animals he trained and bred, um, had happy lives, I would have said, of course they had happy lives. Yeah. They've got these roomy stalls and they get turned out in this big old field one day a week and they uh, get healthy food and they get groomed. But I was a kid. Had somebody asked me a different kind of question, do you think it's a good idea? You know, what the, uh, the kind of question you would you, you would ask an eight-year-old or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old, do you think it's a good idea for a horse to spend 23 hours a day in a stall? Do you think it's a good idea to um, train these animals when their bones are still developing? On and on and on. Then I might have had, I might, the light bulb might have gone off hmm. earlier, yeah. earlier. But you know, I, I grew up in a very conservative, politically conservative household, very conventional household. And I watched my dad build this business from nothing. And I was proud of him. And in fact, I can still hold these dueling feelings in my in my 
self, pride for my dad and what he accomplished and disdain for that terrible, really just difficult, difficult industry that shouldn't exist. But that was an early influence because growing up around so many animals, not only horses, but but we had a couple of goats that I used to sneak into the house. And we had, of course, dogs and cats, but we had a sheep named Babette and we had a miniature donkey named Linda. I was able to understand from an early age that they are so much more than most people understand, particularly the food animals, so much more than most people have the opportunity to understand because, of course, we're so actively discouraged from thinking that food animals might be individuals, might have thoughts, feelings, individual personalities, etc. Every animal has a rich emotional life. Every one of us has a capacity to experience joy and pain and suffering. So, And we all want our lives. So I've known that since I was a little sprout. <laughs> when I moved, I moved to Boston um, to go to grad school and became vegetarian in my 20s, primarily for health reasons. But then when I, right in, in my late 30s, when I, or maybe 40, watched uh, Meet Your Meat and saw just a very short, powerful documentary that filmed inside a slaughterhouse it was the visual seeing what happens to an animal at the end of of his or her life that made me realize oh I cannot participate in this and so that was a couple decades ago and here we are uh, and so what actually I didn't catch when you went vegan exactly because it, it was early I mean you've been vegan a very long time so when exactly was it it was probably 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And, and about that time then about 20 years ago is when you started Catskill Animal Sanctuary and there weren't too many sanctuaries around back then. Uh, not many people knew even what they were. So what inspired you to start this animal sanctuary? Tell us that journey. Well, when I was invited to become the principal of this new charter high school, it was a media and technology school. And media and technology, I tolerate them barely, but my standard line hope is that I can't wait to put away all my devices and climb a tree and build a treehouse and eat mango. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just sort of crave a much simpler life, more connected to the earth. So I turned down this job because it wasn't a good fit. If it had been a social justice themed charter school, there's a good chance that I would be there today, but it wasn't. And When I turned the job down, it made me realize, oh, okay, this is a pivotal moment. I'm probably not going to go back to the classroom. I probably do want to take the next step. So I had already resigned from teaching and made the scary decision to take a little bit of time off, which I had not done as an adult. And eventually what came to me after conversations with friends and lots of thinking and writing and is that I wanted to combine my love for teaching and learning. I I loved being a teacher with my love for and understanding of animals. Hmm. And so 
I didn't have the word sanctuary, not not in the meaning we're talking about in my vocabulary, because I didn't know they existed. But this was the very, very, very early days of the internet. And I went on, and I don't know what what search engine I used, but I but I found animal sanctuaries. And I started looking at them. And even though there weren't that many, there were a number of them more than people realize. People tend to think that there's farm that that farm sanctuary was the only one that existed. But there were there were a fair number that were just much more under the radar. Yeah, there was animal animal place out here in California started. There's animal place. There's an amazing sanctuary on the East Coast called Poplar Spring that no one knows because they're not busy on social media, but it's it's an extraordinary. It's one of the best. Mm. So I looked at them and I thought, okay, this is really fascinating. Number one. Number two, I could do this. And number three, I don't see anybody who's doing the educational piece the way I thought we might be able to do it. You know, there were there were tours at these sanctuaries, but nobody was taking the next step in creating programming that would take people whose hearts and minds had been open and show them how to begin this journey. Mm. So from the beginning, we were a teaching sanctuary, and that's what we've been for 22 years. Wow. Yeah, that's it's really important, I think, to have that educational component. And and there, you know, there is some criticism of sanctuaries in the animal advocacy movement saying that, you know, resources could go, should go or whatever to uh, vegan education, that resources would go further than, you know, than say feeding a pig for the rest of their lives. Uh, although, you know, ask that pig if they, if, if they would want that, uh, I certainly think they would, but, uh, but when you're looking at, looking at tactics and strategy and all of that, you know, there is this critique that we should put the money into education and not sanctuaries. So what do you say to that? Well, I think that that argument that sanctuaries are not a good return on investment, because as you, you to use your example, hope it costs too much money to feed a pig, pig for his or her life. And for the money that it costs to care for that pig, you could do X, you could print and distribute 20 million go vegan brochures you could create a video you could on and on it pains me that we even have have to have the conversation about it because it is such a narrow narrow short-sighted argument for a whole lot of reasons saying that you don't need animals you don't need the animals that people eat in our work to create a vegan world that it's not that it's not they're not important is no different as as i say is i as i said in a talk that i gave at the 2019 animal rights conference is no different than saying look <laughs> saying saying is then advocating for lgbtq rights if none of us had gay friends, uh, parents, siblings, colleagues, 
to to think that we don't need for humanity to know these animals and yet we're asking them not to consume them is ridiculous. Mm. It's ridiculous when when tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around the world, maybe millions, visit what is now a couple hundred farm sanctuaries and a cow approaches them and licks their face or a chicken nestles down in their lap Mm. and falls asleep or a pig runs to them when when they call the pig's name and flops over for a belly rub and then oinks like thank you (laughs) or when a turkey comes up and puts his neck over that person's shoulder to give that person a hug those moments you can't tell me that those moments don't do more than reading a brochure about an animal can do. And not only is it common sense to think that, we know that because we survey people, we survey people immediately after tours, and then we circle back to them and and um, invite them to do a follow-up survey. And the percentage of people who reduce or eliminate animal products from their diet is astonishing. Wow. So I wish that argument would just go away. It's dangerous. It's resulted in a significant drop of funding to sanctuaries all around the country because the people who buy into it, who accept it sort of non-critically are some of the wealthiest donors to animal rights. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a shame. Yeah. Shame. And it has very, very, very real world consequences. Yeah. And and I would also just add one more thing, which is that this is the biggest social change movement in history. We're asking every single person who has the capacity to change his or her relationship to and behavior around animals and the consumption of animals. And if you look at any social change movement throughout history, it's not a tactic or two or three that creates change. It's a sum total of tactics that result in changing hearts, minds, and behavior. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I just feel like it's so important to know them. Even even if you don't go to the sanctuaries, just the social media presence, seeing these sanctuary animals, seeing the individual stories of rescue, knowing their names and seeing their interactions with people. I mean, even just the social media presence of sanctuaries, I think is so uh, important and impactful. It is. It is a thousand percent. Yeah. So you said in your description of the sanctuary that you have 11 different species of farmed animals. I was wondering what are some of the maybe unusual or, or, or non-typical species that you have rescued or that you have as residents? Well, we have horses um, and most people don't think of them as farmed animals, but our, I mean, I, we started with horses for a couple of reasons. One is that was the animal I knew best. Two, we were coming to a very agricultural community and did not think that we could influence people to come, to get interested, to support our work, to get involved. 
if we had started with chickens and pigs. We wanted to start, it was a strategic decision to start with an animal that I knew the best, but also that the public connected with Mm. um, more readily. So we have horses, you know, we have a lot of 30 something year old blind horses. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We've got chickens, ducks, geese, and turkeys. Not everyone has geese, but I don't think it's that unusual. And they they need some kind of water, right? Do you have a pond? Oh, we have a big pond, but we've been challenged this year by the threat of avian flu from migrating from migrating birds oh, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had it's very sad all in pockets throughout the country, but in New York State in particular, because the threat of avian flu has been very active. There were actually several documented cases in our county. Um, We've had to have the birds under roof, which is so sad. Mm. And we can't have them on the water. So they have their, this year, they have their kiddie pools, which just breaks our hearts. And we built, we call them birdios, screened in porches, but it's the only way to keep them safe from the threat of this flu. Because what's so, so scary is that if there is a single documented case on a property, the USDA comes in and kills every single last bird. Oh, yeah. It, that's so, so scary. So awful to think that that could happen and how terrible that, that the whole thing is because of domesticated, you know, industrially farmed uh, birds yep. that are spreading this avian flu. And so here you're trying to protect these birds from that industry, keeping them safe, letting them live their lives out. And it's even traveled to, you know, the threat of this sickness has traveled to the sanctuaries. And what can happen if people don't understand is that, you know, a bird could just fly over and drop a feather or some uh, droppings, feces, and infect the birds at the sanctuary, right? Yes. And yeah, yeah, and we had the have the added challenge that we've got Canada geese who don't really migrate. Mm. (laughs) They just kind of hang out. Uh Um, had no losses of them. So, you know, we're, we're monitoring it and, and being as careful as we can. So I would love to, to talk about elder animals, because I think this is something people don't realize, but animals, farmed animals rarely get to live beyond maybe one or two or three years old. Most are slaughtered, whether it's even the dairy industry, the egg industry, most are slaughtered at a very young age. And at farm sanctuaries is really the only time that we see animals elder, <laughs> that, that they get to live a full life. But because I know that they have been so genetically manipulated, often that is, it causes difficulty in their bodies. Can you talk about elder animals? Sure. We just lost one of my most beloved friends, um, a 14-year-old cow named Tucker. Now, Tucker was a male Holstein, and he was six foot four inches at the shoulder. And with all these animals, chickens, turkeys, cows, pigs, you've got skeletal systems, respiratory systems, joints that aren't supposed to (laughs) carry around that 
much weight. And when they do, the health problems that come along with them are no different than the health problems you would deal with if you were carrying around a 600 pound body. Mm. So the big old chickens, the, the meat chickens have a very short life expectancy. We just lost one who is nearly eight years old, despite weighing 20 pounds. Mm. That's a rarity. Three or four or five years old is a very good long life for a, a bird who's turned into, whose counterparts, the ones less lucky than they are, are turned into chicken parts for us to eat at 42 days old when they're still have their baby blue eyes and still peeping like little chickens. Like we're literally, literally eating babies. So with geriatric care, it's the same as taking care of grandma. We monitor their weight. We alter their diets as they age. So we make sure they're not, you know, that they're, they're slim, not thin, not thin, but you don't want an overweight geriatric animal if you can help it. We start them on when they when their joints start to ache. We start them on the most holistic treatments: CBD, turmeric, etc., and then graduate to medications when when it's time to do that. But we also use lots of other holistic treatments like acupuncture and an electromagnetic blanket, all designed to keep them comfortable for as many years as their body wants to thrive. And then when it gets too complicated and their quality of life is suffering or they've lost all their chewing teeth, or it can be any number of things, then it's time to say goodbye. And doing that when They've lived their long, good life and their good days are are over is our final act of love. It's our, our final obligation to that animal that we've cared for sometimes 20 years. Wow. Wow. And you said you just lost Tucker uh, and you said he was six feet tall at the shoulder. Cows are huge. I had I I didn't realize that until I actually saw them. It's amazing how big they are, uh, but just so so gentle and loving too. At the same time, being so big, uh, cows are amazing. Did you want to tell us about Tucker? Oh, Tucker, Tucker was maybe our number one vegan maker. Um, <laughs> he was love on four legs. Wow. He had a need, an intense need to connect with humans. And he had this uncanny ability when you took people out. He was 6'4 at the shoulder. Wow. Because his mom, he was a Holstein, and Holsteins are a massive breed. And given the fact that uh, bovine growth hormone is not illegal in this country, the way it is in most parts of the world, then 
when you, we when the industry is giving that mom massive quantities of bovine growth hormone, but the not all not all farms do it. Um, it's being phased out, but they are still doing it. And 16 years ago, when he was born, it was certainly very, very, very prevalent. Then that bovine growth hormone is coursing through that little growing fetus mm. in utero. So Tucker was massive. But he had the uncanny ability to, in a group of people, pick out the most nervous person and walk up to that person as if to say, it's okay, you're okay, mm. right? As if to say, you don't need to fear me, I'm just here to love. And I, when he passed away, we got well, thousands and thousands and thousands of emails, um, but hundreds of them telling a story of how Tucker changed changed the person's life. Wow. So he, well, there is a hole in our heart that will never be filled, but he, he died instantly. We had just seen him. We had just given him hay, and a few minutes later, uh, this young woman who was on that particular feed route turned around and he was dead on the ground. Wow. So he had a heart attack. We buried him in a beautiful moment that we'll never forget right out in, out in his field on three bales of soft straw. And we, his favorite treat was bananas. My partner, David went to the store and got a grocery bag filled with bananas. So he buried with straw and bananas and um, he was, he was something else. Hmm. And what a powerful example of how sanctuaries can change lives. How these animals can directly change lives. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, it it happens over and over and over. And I think despite how compassionate and how well-trained our tour guides are, and many of them are teachers, there's nothing like the experience of sitting in front of a giant cow who could kill you with one swipe of his head mm. and having that cow lick your face over and over and over. Tears just stream down people's faces. Wow. Amazing. Well, do you have any other animals you'd like to talk about? Anybody there that you've rescued that inspired you or affected you or touched you in some way? Well, we just did a massive rescue of 40 starving sheep. Mm. They are so emaciated and anemic from a high, 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 high load of parasites that some are too weak to stand up. We're literally having to carry them with blankets out into the grass to enjoy the day. These little animals, disbelief and gratitude that we're just giving them hay. (laughs) They were just that they just have food and they just have water and they they, they're you can we can feel their gratitude and it is just i mean the work is backbreaking they need blood transfusions they're it's the work is backbreaking Mm. because they're so far gone but 
each each one of them makes it worthwhile and we can't wait number the girls are pregnant we we hope that they can carry their their pregnancies to term and we can welcome some little ones so we're learning every day from them i mean i have lots of stories in my books of the of the animals who changed my life and changed my understanding of who animals are mm. if we if we humans just paid a different kind of attention to them yeah. but we learn from all of them we learn from the chickens i mean who knew that that a chicken could learn his name in a minute flat and run to you from anywhere on the farm and Aww. who knew yeah. who knew the world doesn't want us to know. The industries don't want us to know these truths about farmed animals. And why should they be any different than our dogs or our cats? Yeah, you've written a couple of books, uh, Where the Blind Horse Sings and Animal Camp. Do you want to talk about either of those books or what they're about? Sure. Um, Where the Blind Horse Sings is the the accounting of the first six years at Catskill Animal Sanctuary and the lessons, the rescue and the lessons of three animals who changed my life, a sheep named Rambo, a blind horse named Buddy, and this delightful little communicative rooster who just loved me. Oh my God, we loved each other. <laughs> named Polly. Uh-huh. And, you know, simultaneous to telling the stories of the of the work and the daily life and the rescue and the lessons, it, it, of course, is a plea for humanity to go vegan because we know that nobody is trying to hurt animals when they eat breakfast, lunch and dinner. Nobody's trying. It's just an unavoidable consequence of eating animals and animal products. It's on. You can't not torture. You can't not subject animals to terror and fear and pain with your choice. So that plea is sort of threaded throughout the book. And then the second book, the subtitle is Reflections on a Decade of Love, Hope, Hope and Veganism at Catskill Animal Sanctuary, is just takes up where that left off with mm. with bringing people into the day-to-day -day life of Catskill Animal Sanctuary and what it feels like to do this work and who the animals are and what they help us learn and understand. Nice. All right. Well, we'll have to check those books out. I'll definitely put a link to them in the show notes. So if anyone would like to check out those books and, uh, and I know that at Catskill, you actually, you have a bed and breakfast, right? Like a place to stay. You could actually have a vacation there at the sanctuary. Is that right? We do. And lots of people do that. We just met these three cool women who've known each other since high school. They're now probably 50 and they spend their vacation together every year going to a different sanctuary and volunteering at a different sanctuary. Wow. And this year they came to us. <laughs> they worked their butts off. Enjoy this beautiful old bed and breakfast, 200 years old, but with every modern amenity uh -huh. and had a grand old time. So yeah, the, the homestead's open year round. You can book right online. It's called the homestead. Yeah. It's called the homestead. It, but it. yeah, the drop down menu just says stay with us. Okay. 
Okay. Wonderful. Oh, that would be a really, really fun vacation. I love that story of the friends that go and uh, go to a different sanctuary as a trip. That's great. It's nice. Yeah. What a great idea. Well, Kathy, it's been really wonderful to talk to you and we like to wrap up with this question. So I want to ask you, what gives you hope for the future? What gives me hope is the fact that I see change almost every day. The visitors who come down our driveway are much more aware of the need for our species to go vegan than people were even just five years ago. The product availability in any store in any part of the country is quite different than it was just a few years ago. The number of documentaries, books are every every week, it seems like there's a new documentary coming out so that you have to, I believe you have to have your head very intentionally in the sand, <laughs> avoid being aware that, you know, this is something you might think about. So that, that, that movement, that massive movement, you know, there's so many more sanctuaries, there's so many more grassroots organizations. So it's that I see very real and substantial change that gives me hope. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And we've been in this a long time. You've been doing this for a long time. So uh, I know uh, it's it's so hopeful to me seeing the three decades of progress. And I think you can probably relate to that also that, you know, people that are that are just getting in now, they don't have the perspective that we do of how far we've come. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But remember when there was just whole milk, skim milk, 2%, 1%, and half and half. Yeah. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. <laughs> it and wasn't then, that long ago. And yeah. now, now every time I go there, it's like, oh my goodness, almond cashew? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the only thing really, I always say this is, was powdered soy milk. I, that's, that's what I only, the only <clears throat> thing I could find was powdered soy milk and you had to add water Oh, well, you awful. guys were way ahead of the curve because we did not have that on the East Coast. Okay. How, that, oh, yeah, but my mom, you, oh, my God, I forgot about that powdered milk. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's wonderful to see the variety that we have now. We've come so far. It's incredible. We have. Yeah. Just have to escalate because we're running out of time. Yeah. And it's, it, it is, it's sometimes frustrating because the animals are dying every day. So, you know, we don't, we don't want to take the, sh- the, the long route. We need the short route. <laughs> to- <laughs> we, we need the shortest possible route. Yeah. Absolutely. You're right. Oh. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing at Catskill Animal Sanctuary, rescuing, uh, rehabilitating, educating, it's organizations and sanctuaries like yours that have been, that have brought us to where we are uh, and that have created the choices that we have and the awareness that we have. So thank you so much for that work. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Hope. It's been a pleasure and the work is a privilege. Thank you for your really important role in moving us forward for these beautiful animals. 
Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I hope you're having a good 2023 so far, starting some good habits for the new year. One of those habits could be giving this podcast a five-star rating on your listening app for each time you listen to an episode. That would be a wonderful habit to get into scrolling down, giving us a rating. It helps so much, helps bump us up in the algorithm so even more folks out there can find us and listen and be inspired. So please make it a habit and go and give us a five-star rating. If you aren't on an app that offers ratings, if you're just listening on a website, then maybe you can share this episode on your social media feed. That helps us out so much as well. Please help us to spread the love for the new year. We will be back soon. And as always, live vegan. Music.